You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Tuesday, June 19th, the Washington Post hosted entertainers, journalists, technology experts, and leaders in government to discuss the future of the First Amendment. This second annual free-to-state program featured discussions about net neutrality, the evolution of political correctness, political satire in comedy, free speech on college campuses, and so much more. In this segment, Acting Associate Attorney General Jesse Panuccio, ACLU President Susan Herman, and PEN America CEO Suzanne Nossel look at how key players in the free speech debate are shaping First Amendment law across the country. Let's listen. Hello, welcome. Um, I'm Ruth Marcus, Deputy Editorial Page Editor and Columnist for The Washington Post. Thank you all for being here. We're focusing today on how First Amendment issues are playing out on college campuses, in the courts, and as you saw, maybe even sometimes on the football field. You can join the conversation in the room and online by tweeting questions using the hashtag Hashtag free to state. Our guests include two advocates for free speech, Susan Herman, president of the American Civil Liberties Union, and Suzanne Nossel, chief executive of the nonprofit Pan America. But we're going to begin today with the third highest ranking leader of the Justice Department, acting associate attorney general Jesse Panuccio. He oversees many things, the antitrust division, the civil division, the civil rights division, the Environmental and, Environmental and National, Natural Resources Division, and more. So thank you very much to all of you for coming. Um, General Panuccio, we are going to get, I promise you, um, to all the um, deliciously interesting, um, not just about cakes um, on deliciousness, First Amendment issues. But I, I want to start with something else that is under your purview as the um, head of the overseer of the civil division, and that's in the news today, um, which is the family separation policy that the administration has implemented. There was a decision last week from a, actually a federal judge appointed by George W. Bush in a lawsuit brought by the American Civil Liberties Union um, challenging the family separation policy. And here's what the judge had to say. These allegations sufficiently describe government conduct that arbitrarily tears at the sacred bond between parent and child. Such conduct, if true, is brutal, offensive, and fails to comport with traditional notions of fair play and decency. As the overseer of the civil division, it's going to fall to you to defend the government's policy in court. What is the defense for the policy, and are you comfortable defending it? Uh, so, thank you, first of all. It's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate the Washington Post and all the sponsors having us to talk about the First Amendment, which I know we're going to get to, uh, but you have to ask. That is a matter, as you say, that's in active litigation, uh, and two of the parties are on stage, so uh, as is typical with something that we're a party to in active litigation, still reviewing that decision and formulating briefs, I'm going to let our briefs do the, the talking on it and leave it there. How do, well, are you comfortable defending the policy? Well, we'll we will, we're defending in court now, and we'll continue to defend. All right. Yes. We, we will keep an eye on that. And um, meanwhile, we'll keep an eye on the First Amendment. Um, 
you uh, just uh, intervened a kind of unusual um, but part of a series of interventions that the Justice Department has done um, involving um, litigation on campus free speech. Not a normal um, issue for the Justice Department. Tell us uh, the latest intervention involved the University of Michigan. Tell us why of all the array of important legal issues in all the federal courts in the country, uh, it makes sense for the Justice Department um, to devote its resources to this issue. Well, that's a great question. Uh, we're doing many things at once, of course, but this is the First Amendment. It's our first freedom in the Constitution. And you heard at the beginning there was an opening clip there, a speech from the Attorney General, uh, where he said he thinks there is a crisis on the American campus of uh, respect for First Amendment values. And you've seen many, many clips in the news of, of not only speakers getting shouted down, but uh, instances with professors and students. And so uh, he felt, and we all feel to the department, that uh, not only our bully pulpit at the department to talk about First Amendment values, but inappropriate cases where we think a public state-run university has a policy or a practice that is not consistent with the First Amendment to go into court and, and state that view. And, and many times it's important the Civil Rights Division files statements of interest in many different mm -hmm. kinds of cases dealing with civil rights. First Amendment is such a right. Uh, and so we think lending our voice to that uh, matters quite a bit. So some people would look at your intervention and say, aha, you're concerned about free speech when it's conservatives who are being shouted down. Tell, tell, give us your response to that. I reject that. Uh, <laughs> I'm so of, shocked. So, some of these instances, I mean, look, let's be honest about what's going on on campus. Uh, conservative voices typically are not a majority voice on campus, so some of these instances involve conservative voices, but not always. I mean, if you look at the Michigan case, what we filed our statement of interest there is about a policy. That policy applies to everybody, uh, and that policy said, your speech can be punished if it is offensive and the way they define or biased. And the way they, they said the most important indication of bias is how, the, how you feel, how the listener feels. So anyone that, you know, if, if it's conservative speech and a liberal is offended, they might say, well, that's bias or vice versa. So it is not true that these cases involve uh, students or speakers of only one political stripe. And we'll get involved in any case where we think the First Amendment is implicated and violated. And I, I know it's not necessarily a First Amendment issue because um, with the NFL, it's a private party that's uh, implementing um, its own rules about protests on football fields. But the President of the United States, who is a government official, has spoken out very vociferously against um, football players who either choose to kneel or choose to um, absent themselves as the NFL new policy will allow. Um, you said um, pretty recently um, there's now this idea on college campuses that if you hear speech that's offensive to you, you can't deal with it in any other way than by shutting it down. That's not a very good lesson to be teaching, and it's not the lesson of our First Amendment. The president has said uh, if the football players don't like uh, the pledge and don't like the national anthem, uh, maybe they should just leave the country. Why is he sending, uh, explain to us how he is sending a message to football players on their protests that's consistent with the First Amendment? Well, let me try to address two parts of that. Uh, so college campuses, first of all, when we file these statements of interest, they are in cases where they are state-run universities, where you have government actors who the First Amendment applies. On private campuses, although we, 
we may not think it's a, a, a good pedagogical method to shut down speech or only allow one viewpoint. You could certainly imagine a campus, a religious school, for example, that wants to teach certain doctrine, uh, and so they funnel speech, and they're allowed to do that as private actors. Public actors are not. Mm -hmm. Now, the but NFL, as you said... Can I just interrupt sure. you for one second there? Wouldn't your position also apply to private universities that accept federal funding? Well, it depends what conditions there are in the federal funding. Uh, so, you know, that might be a question of the specific funds that are at issue. But uh, writ large, state actors, the First Amendment absolutely applies. And so those are the most basic cases. When you get into funding, it really depends what conditions are on the funding. Um, but to go back to your earlier question, the NFL and the players are private entities, and so they can engage in a debate. The owners and the players can have a debate. And as for the president of the United States or any other government official, they have a bully pulpit. They are allowed to, uh, as politicians and as leaders of the country, express a view. And let's face it, these protests, uh, the, the kneeling, it is about public issues. And so the whole point is to engage in a debate over those issues. On the one hand, the government expresses enormous solicitude for free speech through the intervention that you did. On the other hand, the president doesn't seem to have such solicitude for free speech in his tolerance or lack thereof of the NFL players. I think he's engaging in the debate. Uh, that's what's going on here is there is a debate about what it is like to, you know, what, whether you should stand for the flag, whether you shouldn't, whether that's an appropriate place, what message are you sending? And so there's a message and a counter message, and that's the whole point of the First Amendment is we have a robust exchange of ideas, uh, and sometimes uh, they're joined very sharply, but that's what we want in this country. Um, Suzanne, yeah, you sure. look like you wanted to jump in there. Well, it's hard not to. You know, I think, uh, you know, I think it would be one thing if this was just a matter of political speech, but I think the president has made clear through his relationships the owners that he wants to see players benched and punished. He's called them sons of bitches. I mean, this is, you know, this is from the president of the United States. So, uh, you know, I, I think that the fact that we've seen players who have been punished, whose careers perhaps have been ruined, you know, as a result of the, the president's threats and uh, rhetoric and intervention uh, to punish speech is alarming. I mean, to me, it's one step removed, but it, it, it certainly implicates the First Amendment when the president goes after protected acts of political speech, which these unquestionably are. There have also been cases on campus, for example, at Kennesaw State, the cheerleaders who took a knee, uh, you know, and then were, were, were uh, taken off the field. That's a public university. So, you know, I'd be interested in seeing the Justice Department intervene in support of those cheerleaders' rights. I think some of the points you've made in your briefs where you have intervened are very valid, and they're genuine concerns about free speech on campus, but it's extremely important that the Justice Department show an even-handed approach and uh, intervene equally in cases coming from the uh, suppression of speech from the right and the left, and that's not what we see so far, I think there's another element that has to be brought in here, which is the broader climate of civil rights enforcement and what we see on campus. The campus population already uh, is where the rest of the United States population is going. There's no single racial or ethnic uh, majority population uh, among American students. We see an increasingly demographically diverse uh, student population. They're asking for new kinds of changes and demands on campus, uh, new respect for whether it's nomenclature, pronouns, uh, how uh, LGBT and transgender students are treated, uh, further progress in uh, racial equality on campus. And I think it, it's extremely important that the Justice Department be uh, active in its role in enforcing a equal educational environment. If it's one, if it's free speech, but a pullback on civil rights 
protections and enforcement, I think we're going to reinforce the idea that the First Amendment's not for everybody. We already hear that in our work on campus free speech. Students who are alienated from the First Amendment who say, First Amendment wasn't written for me. The only time they see it as invoked is to protect speech that offends and targets them. I think there's a very real risk we run that the First Amendment comes to be seen as associated with a particular political agenda. And, it, and it's crucially important that you defend a campus that is open both to all ideas and to all people. So if I could agree with a lot of what Suzanne was saying, I'd also like to broaden uh, the conversation since we're start the first panel on the First Amendment. I think there's a widespread misunderstanding and lack of appreciation for the First Amendment on all sides of the political spectrum. First of all, as Jesse was saying, a lot of people are not aware that the NFL cannot violate the First Amendment because it's not a governmental actor. On the other hand, a public university does violate the First Amendment if they punish students, as they have for you know, student athletes for taking the knee during the, um, the Star Spangled Banner, or if they punish conservative students. We agree with that. The ACLU's bedrock principle is we are content neutral about speech, and we believe that universities should be as well. Another place where there's been a tremendous amount of um, you know, punishment of student political expression is on um, Israeli boycotts. There have been quite a number of schools that have you know, prohibited you know, activities or whatever. So it seems to me, I agree with Suzanne, that I would hope that the government would be neutral, content neutral, about defending everyone's right to speech. I also want to follow up on this idea of um, the, the whole idea that there's a zero-sum game between speech and equality, which is just not true. The ACLU wholeheartedly defends both. We think students have a right under federal civil rights laws not to be bullied and harassed. And we also believe that people should have the right to express their political views. And there are a lot of ways in which those two things, I think, support each other. And the idea that so many students think in a recent poll, college students said that they prefer equality to liberty. Now, you can mock that as political correctness and say it's just about words. But what I think it is, I think it's coming from a very deep place of empathy that students understand that if a small, the University of Michigan has a population of African-American students, 5%. And I think students understand that if you have a climate of racial slurs and et cetera, that that's uncomfortable. And I think we have to find ways, instead of having people each in their own you know, echo chamber talking about my conservative speech and my right and my equality, we have to get people talking to each other. And it seems to me the primary job of schools right now should be not to censor and eliminate and prohibit people from talking about a subject, but to get people to talk to each other and to have people who may have a right to make a racist joke understand why it's not a good idea and to make students who want not to have a conservative speaker on campus understand that it's a much better idea to have them on campus and to think through their arguments and where they disagree. Well, there's, there's a lot to respond to there, but can you imagine a world in which the um, Sessions Justice Department, the President Trump Justice Department goes to a um, public university and says, you can't discipline your students, your football players, your cheerleaders for taking a knee? I can imagine a world in which the Justice Department stands up for the First Amendment regardless of political philosophy or the particular viewpoint that is being expressed. Now, every factual situation is different, so, you know, if you're uh, on a team, on a squad, is that you have to look at whether it's a public forum and all of those things, and that's why we analyze each case. But as we've said since we started this initiative, we will get involved in any case where we think the First Amendment is being violated. Uh, and I will tell you, if you look at our Michigan filing, just to respond to uh, what was just said, 
It absolutely is true. Schools have uh, requirements under law and also just as, as good stewards of, of their campus to make sure that they have anti-harassment and anti-bullying policies, but there is well-trodden legal ground about when that uh, deals with true harassment or it goes over into chilling protected speech. And you know, I'll, I'll give you credit. If you look at the ACLU's website, uh, they have a, a page. I looked at it last night on campus speech. It lays this out very well about the difference between um, creating a, a, an appropriate learning environment for students while also allowing the robust free exchange of ideas. And there is a balance there, but it's one we've traditionally been able to strike on campuses, but one that seems in recent years uh, to be waning, unfortunately. I think there's something else that's got to come into it, which is, you know, one of the reasons I think the balance is tipping is that we have seen a significant upsurge in white supremacist activity on campus, in incidents of hate speech and hate crimes on campus. I think that's because, or at least in substantial part, because of this kind of enabling environment for hatred that we see in the current administration with the Muslim ban, with the attacks on uh, transgender troops in the military, uh, you know, now what's happening at the border, uh, immigrant children. DACA students feeling particularly vulnerable and targeted and exposed. And so that has led to, you know, sort of a paradox in a sense, because it's led to this, this upsurge in hateful speech on campus uh, and a sense of, you know, of kind of a more substantiated victimization. I mean, you could say a couple of years ago, you know, this was, uh, you know, a kind of coddling of students, but the environment has become significantly more both physically dangerous and uh, treacherous for certain students, certainly DACA students. And so that has strengthened these calls to curtail speech, which we oppose. But the work of opposing them has become more difficult because of this enabling environment for hate speech. And I think that's something that the administration has to take on. If I could go beyond campus for a minute, it seems to me that the whole idea of safe spaces is something that is part of our partisan atmosphere today. We have such a hyper-partisan atmosphere that I think students are afraid of ideas that they don't agree with, they don't know what to do with them. So let me give you an example that has nothing to do with the federal government, but in D.C., since that's where we are, the ACLU has a lawsuit against the Transit Authority for literally banning the First Amendment. We wanted to take out an ad running the first language of the First Amendment. It was something that we had displayed in Times Square, and it's the text of the First Amendment in English, in Spanish, and Arabic, and underneath it says the Constitution is for everyone. And the Transit Authority refused to allow us to put up that ad because their policy is that you're not allowed to post ads that are intended to influence public debate. Now, what is not intended to influence public <laughs> So following up on that, that lawsuit was pending when the ACLU last week had an enormous membership conference in Washington, D.C., and the MTA would not run our ad for the conference. The only text on that was, you belong here. Totally innocuous ad. They finally ended up allowing us to put it at bus shelters. I saw not, it in the bus shelter. Yeah, on the bus shelter, but not in the subway. Okay, and so that to me, that's like, you know, the safe space. Everyone is afraid of everyone else's ideas. And I think we have to learn to talk to each other to figure out what fundamental values we still have in common. So uh, this is a terrible segue, I'm going to admit it. But uh, <laughs> You're entitled. <laughs> on the question of talking to each other, um, one question has to do with um, our work as journalists and the surveillance that's gone on and the... Um, potential uh, prosecution that's looming of our work as journalists and um, as the government goes after leakers, the surveillance that has occurred of a colleague of ours at the New York Times, whether it was when she was at the New York Times or at earlier um, things, is how do you um, 
in the robust defense of the First Amendment, how do you think about how the government should deal with surveillance of subpoenas for other um, information seeking of journalists' work? And I know you would, um, also, Suzanne, um, had some interest in the question of Ali Watkins. Well, I'll say two things about that just to preface this. One, uh, ongoing criminal cases not on my side of the house in terms of what I manage, and two, obviously can't talk about any pending prosecution. I can say more generally, uh, when you're thinking about the intersection of First Amendment and criminal law, or any provision of the Bill of Rights and criminal law, of course, uh, the Bill of Rights is not a refuge from criminal law, and so uh, a properly enacted, upheld constitutional criminal law is still applicable, uh, even if it implicates something like speech or any of the other protected rights. And so finding that balance is uh, always something the Justice Department strives to do and has policies in place to do that. You know, I, th I think we're at a very dangerous moment in terms of press freedom in this country. We have, out of the White House, a, a relentless drumbeat of uh, verbal attacks on the press. We have a deliberate effort to discredit credible news sources, sources like the Washington Post. I think, you know, at some level, we'd all agree or, or engage in the business of serious news to conflate uh, fake, uh, genuine and fraudulent news. Uh, to amplify lies that are uh, published and, and shared on social media, and to threaten the press uh, in very concrete ways. And so I think everything the administration does has to be seen in that context. It's, you know, to me, it's unprecedented. Uh, it's clear. It's distorting public discourse. Uh, there are many people who cannot sort fact from fiction. And it's a very dangerous moment, I think, in terms of you know, the role of truth in our society. You know, and in that context, we now have uh, you know, this case with this very far-reaching examination of a journalist's personal, uh, the metadata of her personal communications going back to her time as an undergraduate. And you know, that's got to have a chilling effect. We all know that. Uh, you know, it includes encrypted uh, communications, we think. So how can any journalist now go about their work, uh, you know, not worrying about the possibility that, uh, you know, they too, if they're in contact with sensitive sources, uh, you know, may be unbeknownst to them uh, the subject of a similar kind of investigation where their, their metadata and communications are being seized and examined. So I think it's very worrying. I mean, it's a, it's a complicated case. It's not a clean case by any means. And I, you know, I think that the news organizations are responding appropriately in light of that. But I think as citizens who depend on media outlets for our information and our ability to play our role as citizens, I think this is worrying. And I think that's another place, too, where I think people don't appreciate the First Amendment as much as they used to. Marty Barron quoted James Madison, so I'll quote Thomas Jefferson, who once said, if I had to choose between uh, government without a free press or free press without a government, I would not hesitate to choose the latter. So I think you, you undermine the media you know, by calling it all fake news and getting people not to pay attention to journalistic standards and where people are, in fact, checking the truth. I think it's not just you know, about the First Amendment. I think it's about whether or not we're going to have an effective democracy. So another bad segue. I'm going to segue <laughs> to another part of the First Amendment, um, which is the religion clauses. Um, we just had this fascinating, perhaps not the last ruling, in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. Um, I'm wondering where you see this conversation going now. And, and I'm also going to ask the question in a little bit more of a challenging way. The other day, the Attorney General um, was citing the Apostle Paul um, on the command of the to obey the laws of government, because 
God has ordained the government for his purposes, orderly laws and lawful processes are good in themselves. Why doesn't it make sense then for a baker to obey the laws of the state of Colorado that he should serve um, same-sex couples equally with um, straight couples? Well, there's a lot to that question. Uh, <laughs> you know, to step back a little bit in that case, I, I guess if it, to answer the last part of it, uh, the question is what is the law uh, under the Supremacy Clause if you have a First Amendment right to do something and a state law, this is what we're talking about on college campuses, a state law contravenes that, of course it is not the law, the First Amendment is the law. So I think that answers that piece of it. More generally, uh, in that case, uh, it was ultimately decided on Religion Clause grounds and not on speech grounds. Sure. The Justice Department filed a brief that uh, addressed the speech issue and in two of the concurring opinions, I believe Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas both addressed that. And what it really boils down to in that particular speech question and what kind of First Amendment scrutiny is triggered is, you know, do you, what is expressive activity? Uh, do you view the baking of a cake or a custom cake uh, as expressive activity? And, and those can be very difficult questions. There have been many famous and noteworthy cases over the years where uh, nonverbal action has been held to be expressive conduct. The ACLU's been involved in many of those cases over the years. And so those are hard and difficult questions as we balance uh, things like public accommodation laws with the right to speak and what is expressive activity. Can I disagree with your characterization of the case? I think it's perfectly clear what the law is about the First Amendment and has been since at least 1990. And the law is that it, religion cannot be an excuse for refusing to comply with an otherwise neutral law, including anti-discrimination laws. People made religious arguments for why they didn't have to have racial integration. People made religious arguments for why they didn't have to pay women an equal wage. And Justice Kennedy, in his opinion, is perfectly clear that he is not questioning those precedents. What the court did not decide in Masterpiece Cake Shop was they did not decide that there was a First Amendment right of expression claim on the part of the baker. They just really, that was just not in the case, and I think that that's very telling. What Justice Kennedy did decide, and this seems to me to be very typical of his previous jurisprudence, was that you can't have animus against people for, you know, for their religion any more than for their sexuality or anything else. And so what troubled him was the fact that, it just very particular to the facts of this case, that several people, on the, at least one, on the Colorado Commission for Human Rights, Civil Rights, made insulting remarks about religion and that it seemed to be a kind of ad hominem, not personally, but there was animus behind that decision. And what Justice Kennedy says is it's not appropriate for any form of government to have animus against anybody, whether it's that they're gay or that they're religious. So it seems to me that Masterpiece Cake Shop completely upholds our position that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission would have the right to make the same decision in another case. The other thing about the case was that Justice Kennedy situated the case in a time before Colorado recognized same-sex marriage. And so there might have been some ambiguity at that time. There no longer is. So while I think Masterpiece Cake Shop is a great disappointment for the ACLU's clients, David Mullins and Charlie Craig, because they were not vindicated, we think that the case is perfectly clear about what First Amendment law is and that, you know, where the court is going on that. Um, we're getting a little bit short on time here. I'm going to do one Twitter question and then a final question. Caitlin on Twitter asks, and it's an important question, does the potential for substantial disruption, particularly violence from protesters, change what speech is protected on campus? How should we think about that? Kind of 
like lightning round-ish. You know, I really don't think it does. I think it's very important. I mean, people uh, kind of can misconstrue the concept of incitement. Uh, you know, incitement to imminent violence uh, is one of the categories of speech that can be restricted under our law. But incitement means me encouraging them to go and commit an act of violence. It isn't me saying something so provocative that Jesse wants to punch me in the nose. And so, even if I... Uh, even you know, if I you, to... I'm the one who wants to punch. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so, I, I think, it, you know, it is... If speech is still protected, even if it might elicit a violent reaction. You know, this is one of the things that's come under debate because universities have to spend a lot of money at times to secure events by highly controversial speakers. And, you know, our view is, yeah, they need to spend the money. The best thing is to have the person come. You can uh, send a message about how the substance of their speech may be inimical to the values of the university, and it can be important for the university leadership to speak out. But it's better to let a Richard Spencer or a Milo Yiannopoulos, if they insist on coming to campus, they have a valid invitation, often from a student group. It's better to let them come, have their moment, let the protest proceed, but without disrupting their speech. And then they don't get the validation. They can't sue. They don't get to grandstand. And, uh, you know, the moment passes. And I think that's actually where we are now. And a number of universities, including the University of Florida, have approached it in that way. And I think some of the kind of venom has come, begun to come out of that particular issue. So, you know, my view is clear that, uh, you know, the potential for violence uh, is not grounds for shutting down speech. You know, there can become a threshold where an event cannot be secured, absolutely cannot be secured, uh, you know, with the most serious precautions possible. And that might be a different instance, but that's very rare. And are you worried from your end that um, about shutting down speech of protesters and chilling them? Because you've talked a little bit about the heckler's veto and, yeah. and the risks there. So the heckler's veto is another. And in one of our briefs, we talk about this. If a school allows, uh, say, a violent protest to shut down speech, that can be problematic and it can uh, become violative of the First Amendment. But uh, peaceful protest or, you know, protest that doesn't become a crime, it doesn't go to violence, uh, is, is valid exercise of speech. And so you have to allow spaces for that protest. The question is whether the protesters ought to be allowed, if they didn't like the four of us on stage here today, if everybody got up and simply shut us down, that would become a problem if, if you know, it was on a university and that were allowed. So there's always a balance there, but I mean, I think generally, uh, the answer to speech you don't like is more speech, and uh, if it does become violent, though, of course, we have a much greater. So they're going to um, shut us down pretty soon. So I'm going <laughs> to squeeze in one last question, um, which is: You are the acting number three official at the Justice Department. I covered the Justice Department many years ago. It'd be fun to be back covering it today because we have the phenomenon of an attorney general who is regularly rebuked, reviled, criticized on Twitter and elsewhere by the President of the United States. Um, first of all, um, what's that like, working at the <laughs> Justice Department? And second of all, if something happens, are you ready to step in as Attorney General? Has that come up at all? So, Ruth, you, there's 35 seconds left. No, I it's okay. You, you can, can go I over. Bet you, I can filibuster you can right you to the can, end I of bet, this I thing. Bet you could, I am a lawyer, but... after all. Can't see uh, too. pending litigation. <laughs> yeah. uh, look, I'll just say this. Um, it, it's, it's the uh, honor of a lifetime to be able to work at the Justice Department. Many lawyers would tell you uh, that it is something they want to do, and many people in either administra administrations of either party try to do that. So I'm proud to be there. Uh, I enjoy working for the Attorney General. Uh, we go about our business every day. We're accomplishing a lot of good 
good thing. How's he holding up? See. I think he's doing great. And uh, you see him in the news every day, and he's doing well. But uh, we're going to keep on working on the important matters. You know, from my perspective, uh, the things I oversee, the, the divisions I oversee, do a lot of things that don't make the news every day but are nonetheless important. Campus speech is just one of many, and I'm proud to be doing it. All right. Well, thank you, all three of you, for coming here. We really appreciate it. And we are actually within our time. And so I'm moving to my notes of the end. Thank you to all the guests. <laughs> Thank you to Washington Post Live. And um, I hope it was um, as fun for you all as it was for us. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth. Thanks, Ruth. Thank you for your moderation. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.